16, if you want to turn there in the Bible in front of you, or it will also be on the screen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you have decided to, by your spirit, carry human authors along that we would be able to sit here all these years later and have words that were commanded by you, that were inspired by you, Father. So we ask that as we hear them this morning, that we would respond to them for what they are, words from our Creator, words from you yourself. This isn't just any ordinary book, but this is your word to us. May our hearts be ready to respond. May your Spirit work in us to change us and to stir joy and worship in us as we hear your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Then do another Lord of the Rings reference. I don't know how many of you get these ones, but I hope so. One of the earliest tragic moments in the story of the Lord of the Rings is when Gandalf fights the Balrog, or the demon-type figure, on the bridge as they're trying to cross through the mountains. And he ends up falling with this demon-type figure into a deep chasm where the two end up fighting. But for the rest of the group, their hearts are filled with sorrow when Gandalf falls. Gandalf, the powerful leader of their group, the wizard, the one who was known and trusted by all of them within the fellowship of the ring, is now presumed to be dead. While they still continue on, it seems quite hopeless. What hope is there if Gandalf, the strongest one of all, is gone? But later in the story, Gandalf emerges as the white wizard, giving hope to all those as they're fighting these forces of darkness in this world. The joy overwhelms each member of the fellowship as they now begin to see him for the first time. It's not difficult to see the parallels between Gandalf and Jesus, is it? He falls into the chasm, dead as far as anyone knows, but then proves again to be alive later in the story. But the major difference between Gandalf and Jesus, apart from Jesus' death and resurrection actually happening and actually paying the price for our sins, the major difference apart from that is that Jesus tells his followers ahead of time that they're going to experience sorrow. That's where we're at. Jesus is on his last night with his disciples, And in just a short amount of time, the next day, actually, they will no longer see Jesus. He's going to be crucified, taken down, and buried in a tomb. And he tells them sorrow will have seemed to have won the day. But he doesn't end there. He tells them their sorrow will turn to joy when they see him Again, and this is a joy that they will have when they first see him, but it's a joy that will continue the rest of their lives. So today we're going to look at the Christian's joy. What does it mean to have this joy? How do we get this joy? How do we keep this joy? How much of it do we get now versus how much do we get later? These are all questions that we'll see in our passage this morning in John chapter 16. So let's go ahead and read it. John 16 
starting in verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So in that, those first few verses, you probably noticed the repeated phrase, right? A little while. Jesus says, a little while and you won't see me. Again, a little while and you will see me. Then the disciples are completely lost by what he means, right? What does he mean by a little while? Do you know what a little while means? I don't know what a little while means. And then he asks them, are you wondering what a little while means? Because I said a little while and you won't see me and a little while and you will see me. Now, for the disciples, this seems confusing, but this is not a foreign concept to the Jewish people. It's been used throughout the Old Testament, the prophets in particular, to describe the devastating exile that Israel is going to experience, this idea of a little while. We could turn to Jeremiah, we could turn to Hosea, we could turn to Haggai, but let's go ahead and just look at one in Isaiah real quick, just an example of this little while that Jesus is referencing to some extent. Isaiah 10, verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be broken because of the fat. Israel's being told, right, the Assyrians are going to come against them. Come and destroy their cities, take their land, take them into exile. But God offers hope. In a very little while, his anger towards Israel for their sin will end, and it will be redirected now to the Assyrians who are coming and causing all this devastation. This is the ongoing reminder for Israel that as they face exile, a little while, and the destruction, the mourning, the sorrow will end. Now we know it's not easy to hear such a phrase, is it? What if I were to tell you, COVID's only going to last a little while longer? 
Well, what's that supposed to mean at this point, right? When we're in the midst of devastation, even a day seems like an eternity. And so we can understand the frustration or the confusion that comes with this idea of a little while longer. So when Jesus comes to his final night and tells his disciples, a little while and you won't see me, and then a little while and you will see me, we can understand. Right? Let's just look at all of it again here real quickly in verses 16 to 19. Take it as a whole picture. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? So we see two different references to a little while, right? A little while, and they won't see him. A little while, and they will see him. So let's break these things down chronologically a little bit. First, when they don't see him. He tells them they will have sorrow for a little while. Much like Israel, when they're overtaken by Assyria, it's going to be a time of devastation. This is going to be a time of grief for his disciples, right? Look at what he tells them in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament later. You will be sorrowful. Now, for us, this reference is obvious, isn't it? Looking back now at the whole story, when will they no longer see Jesus? It's at his death. After he goes to the cross and he's buried, this is the experience of his disciples. Weeping, lament, loss, grief, sorrow, and even worse. While this is the reality for the disciples, where's the world at? According to verse 20. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. They think they've killed a blasphemer. They think this rebel of their Jewish traditions has finally been defeated. And so do the disciples. They think he's been defeated. They just actually believe this was the Messiah. And yet he's gone. And all that's left is sorrow. But this isn't their final experience. Jesus quickly, in verse 20, turns it, doesn't he? He immediately reveals that this sorrow will not last. They will go from sorrow to joy. What was was once grief now is going to turn into gladness. This is wonderful news. Though they don't fully grasp this, right? We just saw, based on it, they don't even understand a little while. They certainly don't understand the sorrow to joy perspective. But this Messiah himself, God in the flesh, is telling them their sorrow will end and joy will be their new experience. I'm reminded here of David back in Psalm 30. Let me just read it for you. Starting verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored to me life 
from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. For David, this was his experience. He waited and waited in times of mourning, waiting for, though he had already been anointed to be king, he was waiting in the whole process of Saul trying to kill him to be king. Then he becomes king and he defeats all these enemies and he waits and longs and yearns for the day when he's going to see the temple be built. He wants to build the Lord a temple. Now we know his son is the one who actually gets to fulfill that. But this is what David is saying over and over this experience, right? He turned my mourning into dancing. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. He traded his sackcloth and was clothed then with gladness. And that same experience for David, though for it lasted for years for him, is going to be this days-long experience for the disciples. The sorrow was very real, but it didn't last. In fact, Jesus gives an illustration of this sorrow turning to joy for us. I love it when Jesus uses illustrations because it means I don't have to come up with my own. And what a relevant one it is for Mother's Day. I was appalled and rejoicing when I came to this text and realized this is what I was going to get to go through on Mother's Day. I was like, the Lord providentially planned all of this, that he already included a Mother's Day illustration for me. Verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. How true is this example that Jesus gives here? For any woman, any mother who has delivered a child, you can testify to this. Sorrow that the hour has come. The anguish, the pain, the suffering that happens in the process of delivering a baby. Just wanting it to finally be over with. Longing for the end where joy can finally be yours as you hold that child. And that joy finally arrives when the baby is born. It doesn't mean the sorrow wasn't real. It doesn't mean the pain wasn't real. But it was temporary. And now it's overtaken by the birth of this new child. This joy of having this new child in your arms. And Jesus says this will be the experience for his disciples. Weeping, pain, suffering, hurt, Sorrow as Jesus is crucified on the cross and then placed in the tomb. But he says joy is coming, a joy that will surpass their sorrow. Something is being produced as they wait in their sorrow. 
In fact, one may even argue that the sorrow is a necessary step to find joy. Until you realize the depths of the sorrow of your old reality, you cannot truly grasp the depths of the joy of the new reality. We often think of this with maybe people in our world, right? Think of someone who was born into a wealthy family. How often do they fail to understand or be grateful or thankful for that wealth that they were born into because they don't understand the depths of what it means to be in poverty? Or think of someone who's given a promotion in a company because of their family name rather than their work ethic, and they don't understand the depths of gratefulness and thankfulness they should have because they don't understand the depths of the hard work it takes to earn your way to such a position. The disciples' understanding of joy will be so much greater after they've walked through the depths of sorrow of what they see life looking like when Jesus is dead for those days. Which leads us to when this joy will become their reality. Now we saw it referred to in previous verses, but Jesus now comes to it again in verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. So they have a present sorrow, but when does it turn to joy? When they see Jesus again, as it said previously, or Jesus says here, when he sees them again, so they have joy upon sight. When they see Jesus again, their sorrow over his death will end, and joy begins because seeing him means what? He's no longer dead, he's alive. Everything they had been thinking about, what their future looks like, changes when they realize Jesus is no longer in the grave, but he's alive. And we saw this actually happen in the Gospel of John. When we celebrated Easter, we looked at the experience for Easter morning for Mary Magdalene, didn't we? And we saw this, where she was crying, weeping over Jesus' death, even though Jesus was standing right in front of her. But when Jesus says her name and she recognizes who he is, she falls down and clings on to him. Her weeping turns to rejoicing. But we also see it with the other disciples. If you turn just over to John chapter 20, starting in verse 19, just these two verses, when Jesus first appears to them. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. This gladness, this joy, this rejoicing was their new experience, this feeling now that they see that Jesus is alive. And we often see this even in our own relationships here in this world, don't we? Though on a lesser level. Many of you have relatives, maybe children or grandchildren, who you don't get to see on a regular basis, right? Because they live such a far distance away. There's an aching, a longing that fills your heart as you're away from them for long periods of time, just wanting to see them. But at the moment they visit, right, the moment you see them, there is a gladness that overwhelms your heart. Or I think of my own kids where the last couple weeks we've been car shopping and I've had to 
take off for later times in the evenings and sometimes miss getting to see them at lunch or when I help with their naps or something like that. I, I miss getting to see them. And so they go long periods of the day with me at work and driving and things like that and looking for vehicles. So I don't get home till late in the evening. But the moment I open that door and they see me, there's an eruption of rejoicing as my name is called out when I walk in the door. How much more is that true for the disciples? Their sorrow turned to joy when they see Jesus is raised from the dead. But that leaves us with a problem. Jesus said, a little while you won't see me. You will have sorrow. A little while you will see me. You will have joy. What happens after that? Again, they stop seeing him. Jesus ascends into heaven another little while and they no longer see him again. No longer see him, see him, no longer see him. So what happens to that joy? I mean, the disciples understand that that time is even coming. Look back at verse 17. What did they say they don't understand, right? They're asking each other, What is this that he says? A little while you won't see me, and again a little while and you will see me. And then they understand, because I am going to the Father. They understand, long-term perspective here, Jesus is going away from us permanently. At least for their lifetimes, right? They're expecting this. Somehow Jesus is leaving them again. So he'll disappear, he'll reappear, and then he'll disappear again to go be with the Father. And what does that mean for their joy? Especially because what did Jesus tell them is going to happen when he goes to be with the Father? The world is going to hate you and try to kill you. But he also said, I'm going to send you a helper who's going to convict, guide, and point you back to me, back to Jesus. And so what we see is that even though joy begins for the disciples when they see Jesus... This is a joy that lasts even after Jesus leaves. This Christian joy is not based on their external circumstances. It doesn't come and go based on, well, is Jesus actually physically with us right here and now or not? Sure, they don't feel this joy when he's dead, but after his resurrection, this joy will continue no matter what they face, no matter whether he's physically with them or not. Because it's not a joy resting on things outside of themselves. It's a joy that experienced by them in their hearts. That's what Jesus says in verse 22. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. Their hearts, or we could also maybe use the term souls as a synonym here, will rejoice when they see Jesus. But since this is an internal experience of rejoicing, of gladness, it's an experience that doesn't have to end. Because even after Jesus ascends into heaven and leaves them, their hearts still know that Jesus is alive. They can still feel this gladness in their souls no matter what circumstances they face. In fact, Paul makes some sort of reference to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, look at verse 16. So we do not lose heart. 
though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is what allows Paul and the other disciples, the apostles, to face beatings, being stoned, going to prison, even being killed, but doing so with an inner self that is experiencing joy. Their inner self is not determined by their outer self or their outer circumstances. Even when their own bodies are wasting away, their inner self is being renewed day by day. They spend the rest of their lives looking not to the seen Jesus because now he's unseen, Right? But they saw him, and that resurrection began the joy. But now that he's unseen, they look to the things that are unseen rather than the things that are seen and transient, passing away, temporary. And since this joy is an inner experience, something that exists in our hearts and our souls, no person is able to take it away. That's how Jesus ends verse 22. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. As long as the disciples keep their eyes on Jesus, this joy will continue to last in their hearts. No human being is able to take it away from them. Do you hear that? No person can take their joy away from them, because this joy isn't based on external circumstances. It's not based on people outside themselves. The joy isn't even based on the disciples themselves. Because if you turn back to chapter 15, verse 11, where does the joy come from? Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy, my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So the, the joy that the disciples are going to experience, that no person can take away, whose joy is it? It's the joy that belongs to Jesus. Now who can take Jesus' joy away from him? Nobody can. Nobody can take Christ's joy from him. And if the joy we have is the joy that belongs to Christ, nobody can take our joy away from us. So if the disciples have that same joy, nobody is going to be able to steal it. But that leaves with the question of how do we hold on to it then? How do we keep this joy? How do the disciples hold on to this? Once Jesus is resurrected and then ascends into heaven, where does that leave them? Verse 23 and 24. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, why? That your joy may be full. The disciples, by Jesus going to the cross and being resurrected, now have access to the Father that they can go to him in the name of Jesus and be able to ask and receive. But what's the goal of the receiving? 
that your joy may be full. Fullness of joy is kept in us by God. The only hope the disciples have of keeping this joy, of having a full joy that they first have when they see Jesus, their hope of holding on to it comes from them repeatedly, over and over, coming to the Father, asking and receiving over and over in the name of Jesus. And we can go one step further based on what we've already seen in the Gospel of John and say that the Father answers this by the Holy Spirit. Jesus already described much of what the Holy Spirit does to help us, but let's just take one instance. Later in Galatians, what are we given about the Spirit? A list of the fruits of the Spirit. What is one of those fruits? Joy. So the Father answers our request, gives us fullness of joy by the Spirit who lives in us. As the disciples come to the Father by the Son... The Father then, by the Spirit, answers their requests. A joy given to them, not based on their circumstances, but joy as their hearts continue to be set on the resurrected Jesus. Let me just give one example from the book of Acts of what this joy looks like. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them, And charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That's Christian joy taking a beating, being told to stop talking about Jesus, and rejoicing in that, that you were even considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And this joy pushes them forward, that they continue to preach and proclaim and teach who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So my friends, the question to you is, does such a joy exist in your own life? Not a joy based on whether your savings account is where you want it. Not a joy based on whether your job is going smoothly. Not a joy whether your friends or family treat you the way that you want to be treated. Right? Even specifically if we look at moms for a moment, right? When your schedule is overwhelmed, when your family isn't appreciating you properly, or even if you have kids come to you and say, I don't believe in the same Jesus that you believe in. Do you still have joy? Even on our worst days, if our our outer selves are wasting away, our bodies dying, even if we have no money, no house, fired from a job for being a Christian, threatened with prison for holding to the truths of Scripture, would your heart still have gladness? Joy is an experience of our souls. Our souls are not determined by what's going on around us. No person, no person in your life can take joy away from you. So if you have the joy of Christ in you, other people don't have access to take that. Which means what? If you don't feel this joy... 
If you're not holding on to this joy, it doesn't mean someone stole it from you. It means you took your eyes off of Jesus. If you've lost this joy, your heart is no longer set on him anymore. We might, and actually quite often are tempted, aren't we, to say, that person stole my joy from me because of the way that they hurt me. But Jesus is clear here, it's not theirs to take. They don't have access to it. It's his joy. Sure, people can make it more difficult for us, more distracting for us, by the hurt that they cause to help, to, for us to set our eyes of our hearts on Jesus. They can create more distractions, but they are not responsible for whether we set our eyes on Jesus or not. We're responsible for that. True Christian joy belongs to Jesus. No one can steal what belongs to him. Do you have this kind of joy? How much of that joy is your ongoing reality every day when you wake up in the morning? Or consider your prayer life this morning. Or consider your prayer life as a whole. Consider your relationship to God through Jesus. How much are you asking for this inner experience of joy versus I want my circumstances to be changed? I am praying that so-and-so would be nicer, or I'm praying that you will bless me with a pay raise, or I'm praying that a health issue would be resolved. I'm not saying we can't pray for healings or God providing or for God even to change someone's heart. But keeping our joy cannot be dependent upon those prayers being answered. Joy is not dependent on the external, but on what is going on inside of us. How much are you coming to God and praying, asking God to keep your eyes of your hearts set on Jesus? How much are you asking, God, help me to see Jesus more clearly. Help me to value him more than I already do. Don't settle for worldly ideas of joy. A happiness that's fleeting and easily lost based on circumstances. Christian joy is found only in Jesus. It's an experience of our hearts, our souls. It cannot be taken away by any person. And the only way we're going to hold on to it, the only way we're going to keep this fullness of joy is if we continually come to the Father and ask and receive. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice, my friends. If you've trusted in Christ, your sins are paid in full. Jesus is alive today and reigning over all things. The Holy Spirit has been given to you as a helper to continue to point you back to Jesus and remind you of the truth. So set your minds and your hearts on him and your joy will never be lost. Because one day, we ourselves will have a similar experience to the disciples. Jesus told them, a little while and you won't see me. A little while and you will see me. While you and I do have that joy right now, not the sorrow, but the joy, we still are in a moment where we no longer see him. Our hearts are open to see him by the Holy Spirit, but we still look around us, don't we? We look at our external circumstances and see a fallen world. We see suffering surrounds us. 
doesn't mean our joy is lost, but it does mean that we anticipate a day when we also will have joy upon sight, part two. One day, Jesus will physically return and restore all that has been corrupted in this world. All of it will be renewed. And that day should also be an experience of joy for us. In fact, look at how Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, present, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice future and be glad when His glory is revealed. Those who have Christian joy now will rejoice all the more and be glad when Christ's glory is revealed at His second coming. When all is made right, those who trust Jesus now, those who have Christ's joy now, will rejoice when that final day comes, that final day of the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are told we will rejoice. Last passage, Revelation chapter 19 of the marriage supper. Starting in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. This is the final reality of rejoicing for all of us if we are rejoicing now. A Christian joy now is what leads to rejoicing then. So let me ask you again, my friends. Do you have this joy now? A joy, a rejoicing deep in your soul that's been given to you by the Father through the Holy Spirit as your mind and your heart is set on Jesus Christ and Him alone. A Christian joy that surpasses all of our sorrowful circumstances. A Christian joy that cannot be taken by anyone else. And a Christian joy that will last into all eternity. May this joy in Christ be our reality, not just in the future, but each and every day right now. Rejoice in the Lord always, my friends. Again, I'll say, rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we come to you asking for what we're told in this passage. In the name of Jesus Christ, give us this joy. Make our joy full. Fill our hearts 
by your Spirit with a gladness that will last forever. A joy that cannot be taken from us by any person, by any circumstance. Help us, Father. Give us this joy. May we set our hearts on Jesus. May we not lose sight of Him, not take our eyes off of Him. And may we find this joy, this rejoicing of our souls to be our present reality every single day. Fill us with gladness as we sing praises to you here at the end. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to come up for the, the final song. And I hope this song stirs joy. That it reminds us of the truth. That there is an assurance. An assurance. A certainty that Jesus is yours. And he is just now. This joy is but a taste of what our future reality will be. But it is a fullness that we can experience now. So may this assurance that we sing of. And praise God for stir our hearts with joy. Let's sing.